Welcome, my friends, to another action-packed, exciting, thrilling episode of the Everyday Missionary Podcast, or at least one that's a little bit thought-provoking and maybe helpful to living like Jesus in this world. And again, that is the heart of this podcast. Every single time uh, I grab the microphone, stick it in front of my face, and decide to say something, the heart is always getting back to being like Jesus, right? And that is going to be uh, kind of like uh, like the North Star. It's the in on the compass of this podcast. And today's podcast is very much about that. And I think it's important always to remind all of us of that fact that that's the mission here because it's really easy to get diverted, right? And just want to rant to rant or talk to talk or whatever else. And and I never want it to be something where it's like, oh, okay, so I wanted to deal with some subject matter and subject matters dealt with and it wasn't all about being like Jesus. And part of my heart behind this is that um, I think it is very easy to get off that path, but to get off the path of being like Jesus in the name of religion, in the name of evangelicalism, uh, in the name of morality or purity or, you know, kind of a Christian heritage nation kind of thing, whatever it is, like, it's very easy to stop being like Jesus in the name of all of those things. And so weirdly enough, it's not like stopping to be like Jesus and embracing what we consider to be antithetical, anti-Christian things, sometimes do we do things that are actually incredibly anti-Christian and we think they're Christian and that's a part of the problem. And that's sort of what I want to address today. So this is episode 193, I think it is. Um, and weirdly enough, it has some relationship to last week's episode. So when I was dealing with parenting adult kids, kind of from that mid-teens on up, uh, and some people were like, well, that was a weird subject. You're dealing with all these kind of more political or social or cultural things and what the Bible speaks to those. And then you kind of veered off into parenting for a week. Like, what was that all about? Well, it's actually connected to something that I've been thinking about a lot, which is um, how more and more I think we as uh, Christians of maybe my generation, so Christians in their 40s or 50s, let's say, are going to continue to see our kids, people in their teens and 20s, maybe even 30s, kind of that Gen Z millennial age bracket, we're going to see them deconstructing their faith. We're going to see them either walking away completely from their faith, walking away from the church or having some kind of hodgepodge spirituality that's a mix of a lot of different things. And then we we as parents or as the people that are kind of the generation ahead of all of that are going to look and be like, whoa, what's going on? And from that, we're not going to want to focus on our influence side as much as we're going to want to focus on control. We're going to want to have a lecture. We're going to want to make a point. We're going to want to grab an apologetics book and say, hey, here's where you're wrong because now you're just buying into relativism. You're buying into pluralism. You're buying into, uh, you know, just whatever it is, like hedonism, you pick an ism, you're buying into the ism. And and so we're going to want to lecture that instead of leverage influence in that and try to be compelling as opposed to be kind of bossy and critical and all those kinds of things. So the topic last week very much then has to do with the topic this week, though the topic this week is all about how uh, evangelicalism's culture wars have in fact killed effective evangelism or even, I would say, has uh, had an impact that is perhaps killing off the next generation because they're picking up stakes and walking out the door and deconstructing their faith and, and, and not wanting to be a part of this thing called evangelicalism or this thing called Christianity or the church. And so all of this is sort of interrelated, right? So uh, it's not like last week was just this 
aberration of like eh, just a weird one-off and then we're back to the topic. No, I kind of wanted to do that because I wanted us to be thinking in that space when it comes to then how we deal with the next generation and how we share the faith to the next generation. And and this isn't just in parenting. It really is just is dealing with other adults that have different ideas in general. We don't want to be trying to control people into a way of thinking or living. We want to be compelling them to a different way of life, right? That's what we want to do. So influence isn't just for parents and their adult kids. Influence is for all Christians to be effective as missionaries in the culture that we find ourselves in. And yet, unfortunately, I think we've sold off some of that influence because we wanted control instead. And that brings me to culture wars and how culture wars in the name of evangelicalism has uh, effectively harmed. I said killed earlier. I don't know if that's quite the right word. I should say it has harmed, continues to harm effective mission or evangelism or gospel sharing, right? I, I think it's done some real damage and that damage has multiple pieces to it, right? It's leading some to deconstruct and walk away and others, they simply have a very negative view of Christianity because they have a negative view of evangelicalism because they have a negative view of the way in which we've conducted our culture wars. All of that, though, is not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is not how they interpret it. My concern, my worry, and what I want to talk about today is my biggest, like, heavy burden where I think it's getting killed, so to speak, is our own hearts as it relates to disbelieving people, as it relates to deconstructing people, as it relates to those who would have um, a dissimilar way of seeing society and culture than, than maybe our sense of what's familiar and similar and should be true to make a thriving environment, like to us, like what we think should be, right? So all of that is kind of in the wheelhouse of what I'm trying to talk about today. So um, where do I start? Well, let me start with what I think, again, is the, the thing that is most concerning to me, and that is the death of our heart for lost people, because instead of having a heart for lost people, we have a frustration toward lost people or disbelieving people or people that have deconstructed their faith and walked away or whatever else. Like we have this us versus them mentality. And this is why I want to be really clear from the get-go. Anytime we as Christians, right, have an us versus them mentality, anytime we see some other people group, population, politic, whatever, as the enemy or the bad guy or the problem to be dealt with or the person to be stood against. When that becomes our heart, the gospel dies. It dies, right? Here's why I say it dies. And here's why I'm trying to make this sort of dramatic on purpose, right? So here's your theology lesson for the day. Uh, When Jesus came into the world, The Apostle Paul, our good friend, writes a big, long letter called Romans. And in that, he says, here was the the plight of humanity. Everybody, every single person does not seek God. No, not one. That's what he says in chapter three. So when people are like, oh, no, people seek God. No, Paul is clear. Like people don't seek God, right? We choose our own way. We do our own thing. We plot our own path. We might do that in the name of religion. We might do that in the name of God, biblical law, whatever else. But, But ultimately, the point was, we were enemies of God. Paul says that later in Romans as he gets into chapter four and chapter five and and then into chapter six. Like he's making the point that if God said it's an us versus them mentality, we all lose, right? But in the goodness, kindness, love, and grace of God, he sends Jesus into the world and Jesus loves his enemies. 
Jesus gives himself for his enemies. Jesus takes on the sin of his enemies so as to forgive and free his enemies by grace, right? Not by the fact that his enemies went, oh, I get it. I'm so smart now. I'm so prudent. I can be living a better life, whatever else. No, it was just simply we were against him when he was for us. End of story. And he comes and he gives his life for us. And then he brings us in by grace, transforms us. And he says, now that I've made you to be like me and you have my divine image. That's what second Peter chapter one, verses three and four talks about because you have everything for life and godliness. Go be like me, right? Go think and act like me to a world that rejects to a world that kind of arrays itself against God. You are now an ambassador of God and you go do exactly what I did for you right? That's your theology lesson, that Jesus loved you, his enemy, and gave himself for you, his enemy, and made an investment into you so that you would no longer be his enemy, right? And much of the world is still his enemy. Like, they don't want him, but he still did it for the whole world, right? Like, that's his mission and calling, and that's what he accomplished. And so, because of that, we then don't have the luxury of an us versus them mentality. We have bought into a model that says, I'm just for them. It doesn't matter who the them is. I'm just for them because Jesus was for me. Jesus is for the world. This is what he's doing, right? And so this is where, again, I go back to the culture wars that we have fought in the name of evangelicalism. We fought those in such a way that we felt like, you know what? Our kids are at stake. Our future's at stake. Our heritage is at stake. We're a Christian nation that's eroding. And so we need to go to war with this group and that politic and this system and that ideology and everything else. And in the process of that, it wasn't just that the ideas were seen as the enemy, but those who hold the ideas they began to be seen as our enemy or as our foe, the ones to be defeated. And then with that, we felt we had the right to mock, make fun of, belittle, speak evil of, think the worst in these people that we saw as a threat to our faith or our heritage in some way. And so from that, then we lost a heart for disbelieving people. Now, we still maintain like, hey, we want to do evangelism. We want to reach the lost. Like we we have this insider baseball speak in the church where we talk about that. But at the same time, we started to have this souring kind of thing. And in that, we would sound almost mean if you weren't on our team. Or we would sound mean to those who held different ideas and values from us. We didn't sound like people trying to compel. We sounded like people trying to control. We didn't sound like people that wanted to leverage influence And the most powerful way you can influence somebody is to come alongside them in kindness and you woo and win them over by your heart for them. We didn't do that. We said, no, I'm just going to lob things over the wall, the social or cultural wall, and and we're going to hope that we do enough damage by lobbing enough things through protests and pickets and petitions and boycotts and everything else that we can force America to do the right thing again. Like, that's what we're going to do. And so evangelicalism, evangelicalism then felt it was to be the referee. It was to get involved throwing a lot of flags, blowing a lot of whistles, calling all of the fouls that were going on. And that was somehow going to both protect the next generation from falling victim to whatever ism was popular that day. And we would stand triumphant in the name of Christ, yet being nothing like Christ. And then, like I said, in that kind of corroding, contaminating and crushing our hearts 
for disbelieving people or people who have deconstructed their faith and left the church. We, we just lost sight of what it means to be truly like Jesus. We seem to be more like a Pharisee, more like religion, right? We wanted Jesus to be the one who would conquer our social or cultural foes more than he would win and woo their hearts through our conduct, right? Because we're the ambassadors, we're the missionaries. It's like he left us here to take care of his house. As a matter of fact, this last week in the Gospel of Luke, we were looking at that, right? Where Jesus is like, while I'm away, while the master's away, you're my eyes and ears and hands and feet and heart. You do like I would do it. But we said, no, I want to try to protect my world in this world in the name of you, Jesus. And that means I can sort of vilify some people in the process. I can judge some people in the process. I can get completely off the rails of the Sermon on the Mount. And instead, I can be very religious in the name of you, Jesus. That's what I'm going to do, right? Or that's what we're going to do. And it created a mess. A mess. And perhaps the biggest mess is the mess of our own hearts, where again, we don't break, ache, hurt, sob for those who don't see the world like we do, but rather we kind of stand in judgment of them. That's toxic. That's where, again, the gospel goes to die. Because the very heart of the gospel is grace, is love, is God coming to enemies. And if we can't embody that, then no matter what we say, it doesn't matter. It's not going to be caught, right? We can teach all day long, right? But it's not going to be caught because it's not going to be felt because the, the feelings that we have toward a disbelieving world aren't compassion, right? Aren't hurting for them, but rather it's feeling hurt by them or threatened by them or fearful of them and feeling that we need to point it out or shut it down, right? And, and that's not effective evangelism. That's not effective gospel presentation. That just creates more conflict and division and, and, and fracturing and, frankly, contamination of our own hearts and minds to where we start thinking this is the way we have to then keep moving forward. We need to just kind of try to stifle those voices more. We need to get back to God, prayer, apple pie, you know, like that, and, and without it being like Jesus. And, and that then leads into why I think we are seeing as much deconstructing as we are, right? Why we are seeing millennials and Gen Z unplugging from their family's Christian heritage and roots, why they're picking up other ideas or they're opposed to the ideas they see. If you really look at a lot of the deconstruction stories today, what they're really opposed to, what they're really deconstructing is they're like, okay, um, I, I see how Christians are too political to the right. I see how Christians were supportive of the former president in a way that seemed out of sync with their own Christian values. Um, I see how evangelicals have responded to the the LGBTQ community. And, and, and so actually what they're getting into and what they're deconstructing and why they're walking away is directly related to the culture wars that we were fighting for the last 30, 40 years, right? All the battles we fought to make sure our kids weren't swayed away from our faith those are the very things that are causing them to leave their faith. I mean, that's the irony. We said, we got to make sure that we take a stand. And, and yet we did it without being like Jesus. And we didn't have a compassionate heart toward those who are different than us. And from that, our kids grow up and they go, that, that isn't compelling to me. That doesn't look like what I see in the Jesus of the Gospels. And so I'm punching out. So what's interesting to me about that then is I think many deconstruction stories are not really deconstruction stories that are leaving the authentic Christ of the Bible. I don't think they're stories that are truly leaving the Gospels. I think they're stories that are, people are leaving evangelicalism, and maybe rightly so. 
Like in the sense of there's enough kind of corruption that's baked into the cake, right? There's enough of this lack of willingness to love recklessly and indiscriminately disbelieving disentangled, whatever you want to call them, people. Like, and, and instead of doing that, it was like, no, we, we've stood against and our next generations have said that ah, that's not appealing to me. It just seems more like you're, you're against than you're for. You would rather they go to hell than you reach them so that they might go to heaven. Like, you know, like the, that kind of spirit, I think is what some of these generations that are coming into their own have witnessed. And from the go, we're walking away. I'm walking away in pretty large numbers. I mean, this is no small thing. And and what I want us to do then is to kind of stop and go like, okay, so where am I supposed to own, whether as an individual or as a community, where do we own some of the responsibility that says people are leaving the faith less because the world has won them over and more because evangelicalism has driven them out? And is it the things in evangelicalism that has driven them out? Are those things truly things that we should have been dying on hills for? Are those the things that we should have gone to war over? And did it corrupt our heart in such a way that we've lost compassion for for disbelieving people? And therefore, we now have a house growing with disbelieving people. And from that, they're going to feel the same way. You know, when I deconstruct and I walk away, here's what I know for sure. My church isn't going to love me, you know, or my parents aren't going to love me or my heritage isn't going to love me. Uh, They're going to take kind of a stand against me if I start voicing my thoughts on Black Lives Matter, if I voice my thoughts on politics, if I voice my thoughts on the LGBTQ, like as soon as they do, I'm going to be a part of their culture war because again, that's what they've done. They've gone to war, they fought, they shot, they whatever else. And so this perpetuates the problem to me, right? And so this is where even a few weeks back, I talked about, you know, evangelicalism. This is why all this is kind of linked together, actually. So the parenting one wasn't outside of the scope of some of the other things. Um, but evangelicalism, it, if it's to move forward, it maybe needs to kind of die in a lot of respects. It needs to get back to dying to itself and taking up a cross and following Jesus through self-denial. And, and, and from that, let all of this other baggage go away. Because we're not winning anybody over. We're not reaching anybody with this. We're doing the opposite. And all the things we're hoping to safeguard, well, all the safeguards have fallen away because we just picked wrong battles in wrong ways, right? And so now it means we need to get back to having a heart that's authentic for a world that's estranged from Christ. We need to outlove a world that says love wins. We need to outlove that world. We need to outforgive, right, our world. And that's not terribly tough to do right now in the context of cancel culture and things like that. Like we really have a wonderful window to become incredibly like forgiving types of people. We need to own Jesus's message to not judge, especially disbelieving people. We shouldn't judge them. We need to, again, be reminded of the fact that those who are not followers of Jesus, um, they're the ones we need to make the most compassionate investment into, right? We need to go out of our way to be reminded of the fact that they're not the bad guy. They're just not. And so this is why when we do things like we get on social media and we rant about certain politicians or certain political views and everybody that believes this or holds this is crazy or, hey, I'm glad that this governor signed this law or that law because now it shuts down a certain group of people, which usually for Christians, when we go on and we celebrate a governor making laws against other people, um, it's usually, again, people that we oppose, right? 
we oppose them on, again, some kind of ideological or moral ground. And we're saying, yay, we're glad our politicians have stepped in and shut down an entire people group to have a voice or have a right or whatever else. And the problem, again, in that isn't that maybe that's a very moral thing for that governor to do, but when we kind of voice our support of these things, it automatically is interpreted for those groups like, oh, there's those evangelicals again. They don't love us. They don't like us. They're against us. They're judgmental. They're homophobic. They're, you pick your name that they call us. They're hypocrites, whatever else. Um, and and they go, I kind of get it because it does seem like the way we carry ourselves is it's us versus them. And we're kind of glad when the them loses some power. We're glad when the them loses some strength. We're glad when the them loses some rights. And then we're mad when we lose our power, our strength, and our rights, right? And so all the more, it just perpetuates the us-them and hardens our heart to wanting to care for lost or estranged people. And this is what I think we're losing people because of. I think we're losing people coming to Christ, and I think we're losing people who used to claim Christ and are walking away. We're losing both doors, right? Because frankly, I think we're struggling to be like Jesus. I think we're more fixated on being... Um, kind of heritage-driven, nostalgia-driven, um, politically-driven, morally-driven, just not Christ-driven. And, and this is where we want to rethink and redeploy, where we want to really do not only some soul-searching and mere-gazing, but some scripture studying, Right? Like we want to look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and then the consequences of those four pieces of literature in the epistles and go like, what am I supposed to do? Like in our own lives, right? We're supposed to be moral examples. In our own lives, we're supposed to embody the ethics of the kingdom. Absolutely. This is where morality matters. We should be the ones living it. But we're to live it so it's compelling. We're to live it so it's influence, right? We're not trying to control or force our culture to play by our rules. We should be showing why our rules are flourishing and better, not from a your worse, we're better, but it actually brings flourishing to life when we live out these values that Jesus articulates in his message, right? And that should be the thing that wins people over more than anything else. And then in this, we need to, again, embody the idea that, hey, there are no enemies in the life of the Christian. There are no enemies. There is not a political enemy. There's not an ideological enemy. Everybody is an image bearer of God, right? Now, there are thoughts and concepts that can stand opposed to truth, right? But we want to make sure that we keep that very clear from the individuals, right? And we go, like, thoughts can be corrosive, right? But our calling is to reach people that have thoughts that maybe we find corrosive. And part of that is saying, you know what? I'm not going to get as fixated on the corrosive stuff as I am going to be on trying to be Christ to a person that is is going to be stuck in whatever their thing is and they're not going to come out of it necessarily unless the Holy Spirit touches their life, taps into the person in such a way that brings transformation, right? All the arguments in the world, all the, quote, rational, logical arguments, which I sort of get wearisome of that because both sides, all sides think their ideas are rational and the other side is irrational. This is just logic. And I'm like, have you ever taken a formal logic class? Because I think oftentimes when we talk about this is just logical, has nothing to do with logic, actually. It's just your gut intuition has a conviction 
and it makes sense to you and you can build an argument around that, but it doesn't always make it logical or rational. It just makes it your position. But we as Christians need to kind of try to get past all of those things and say, the most important thing I can do is to be like Jesus to people. And what Jesus was to me is I was an enemy and he was my friend, right? I thought crazy and he loved me anyway. And he, again, kind of pulled me into a new place in a way that was compelling, not in a way that was coercive or forceful or vengeful or shaming. He didn't use those tools. He said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I am lowly and gentle in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 to 30. So good. Like that's what we're meant to be. And I think it's only when we embrace this, when we embrace a genuine, authentic, heart-aching love of what we perceive to be the others, only then will the gospel become effective in our culture again. And only then will our kids that are walking away see something that's worth coming back to. And so I do think that this is a legitimate, serious thing. As I watched over the last, couple of years. Um, I'll I'll just be super open with you for a minute. Um, I have seen, and again, social media is not always a great barometer for this, but it is a barometer. And I've seen so much, frankly, meanness out of evangelicalism on social media, a willingness to call political leaders bozos and idiots and these people are stupid and losers and, you know, uh, posts that kind of mock certain people groups and and talk about how if there is a people group that's offended by something, how they're just silly and weak and wimpy and they should get over it and toughen up and in my day and all these kinds of things. And, and, and I, I, I just would see it time and again, kind of a pride and an arrogance, a, a lack of humility, a lack of graciousness, an overly critical spirit toward people that didn't see the world as they saw the world. And, and I remember just going like, I, I barely want to be a part of this. In fact, to be perfectly frank, um, I had real moments of if I wasn't already in this evangelical thing, I don't think I would join this evangelical thing, right? I stay in it to be a reformer, hoping that it gets back to being like Jesus. That's why I keep sticking around in it. But that's where at times I'm like, man, I should just ditch the label. I'm like, well, then what? You know, I, I ditched the label and then it's, just left to people who will continue to to magnify all of the wrong habits that create this negative label called evangelicalism. I'd rather stay in it and try to see it become what it's meant to be in Christ, getting back to the values of evangelicalism and what that was really all about when it started hundreds of years ago, right? Like I kind of stay in that, but but as I've looked around, I I'm I I'm just I lament just our tone culturally. I lament our, our willingness to 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 make issues over things that aren't things. And I lament the fact that I'm not sure the world looks at evangelicalism and goes, wow, those people are incredible servants. They are so loving to people that don't see the world as they are, or they do. They, they're just an altogether different group that makes me find them to be curious, right? They're just oddities on the landscape of American life. Like that's not our reputation. We're incredibly predictable in all the wrong ways. And, and, and so this is why I think it's imperative on us to then say, all right, what's an everyday missionary look like? And, and what does Jesus look like? And how do I start to see a reformation occur with an evangelicalism 
to where it gets back to its truest roots, which is not, again, sounding like we're the critics of society, but rather we're to be the caretakers by being people who love whatever we perceive to be unlovely. And we love it in sacrifice, right? We love it in a genuine sense of I'm putting others' needs before my own. This is why I think Jesus' words on loving an enemy are so beautiful because he spends a lot of time on that. Like he takes up a lot of space in the Gospels, in the Sermon on the Mountain, the Sermon on the Plain, specifically telling us what that looks like. And I'm pretty certain it means we don't curse them. We don't name call them. We don't become giddy when they fail. We don't point out how they're hypocrites when they say one thing and do another and, ah, gotcha. Like, that will not compel a person. It just won't. It doesn't compel me. It wouldn't compel you, right? And so then from that, like I said, we're losing a lot of souls because we're taking other things and putting them in the way. We're creating all kinds of stumbling blocks instead of Christ. Like, we're just like Pharisees in that sense. that's the one thing. But then we're also losing the next generation because they go, why would I want this at all? Right? Why would I want this at all? And so they deconstruct out of evangelicalism, understandably so. Right? But in the process of that, the baby goes with the bathwater. And then they also leave their Christianity in the process of leaving their evangelicalism. And with that, they leave maybe a genuine orthodoxy in the process of that as well. And so we've created stumbling blocks that have done great damage And we need to start prying those out and pulling those up. And it starts with us as individuals being a different type of people, right? Where, like I said earlier, we are out loving the love wins category. We are out forgiving the idea that, you know, or at least we're we're displaying a type of forgiveness that's far more potent than the kinds of forgiveness people talk about in our society and oftentimes don't display Again, council culture being a good example of that, but we need to outforgive. We need to just kind of retire this whole judgment thing because we are terrible at it. We are terrible at discernment when it comes to Jesus talking about don't judge, especially the, the, the disbelieving world. Like we just have no space to do it, but boy, we're really, really good at constantly judging the world in some capacity or form. And from that, we lose gospel opportunity. We squander gospel responsibility and we kind of corrode our own hearts on loving unlovely people. When Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. I think sometimes we go, well, the least of these are down and out people that we feel pity for, right? And that would be the least of these. But the least of these may in fact be people that are just completely ideologically, politically, and and morally opposed to you. Like they go, no, I'm gonna burn you Christians to the ground. That's a least of these too. And we're to see Jesus in them as well because everybody bears his image. And so we're to relate to everybody as though Christ is there in an image form in them. And we're going to love Christ by loving them no matter who they are, right? So if they're hardcore pro-choice, hard left, super socialist, Black Lives Matter, you know, you take your laundry list of things. They, they, are, they are woke over every issue and they're frustrated at the hypocrisy of religious people everywhere. And they want to see us canceled in every way and lose our rights and lose our voice. And da-da-da, the list goes on and on and on of all the things that we can fear and be frustrated by. And we have to love those people squarely, purely, truly, because that is the only thing Jesus has called us to do in their lives, right? Pray for Do good. Bless those who are your enemies, those who are against you. This is the only way we will see our kids come back. 
This is the only way we will see lost people saved. It will not be through any other tool. Everything else is just a stumbling block that gets in the way of Christ. And that, my friends, is super dangerous, super destructive, and Jesus warns of such things. And so this is a tall order, I know. And this is maybe it seems like sort of uh, just a, I don't know, a bunch of thoughting, thinking, you know, kind of idea floating. And, and where's the, the boots to the ground of this? Well, the boots to the ground of this starts with every one of us. Like I said, it's incumbent on us to, to use our voice wherever we have it in a way that is inspiring and compelling. And again, it's leveraging influence as opposed to control. And that influence isn't trying to influence the political structure to provide the world I want. The influence is trying to influence people to go, that's curious, you're different, why? And we go, well, that's Jesus, man. That's what it is, right? Because I think when we can get to that place, we will be incredible everyday missionaries.